Welcome to The Third Web, a podcast about the technologies powering the next generation of human civilization. I'm your host, Arthur Falls. This podcast is targeted at industry observers looking for a technical explanation of issues on the frontier of what has become known as the blockchain space. However, for those less versed in the field, supplementary content will be published in anticipation of each episode, if possible. Failing that, I'll add links in the notes to help along the casual listener. Blockchain technology, and specifically the idea of a value transport-enabled internet, is no longer new. Looking at the recent history of the space, we see a hockey stick of innovation and investment. In just 2014, just as the first ICO boom launched, I began my first podcast, Beyond Bitcoin. It explored the explosion of new blockchain platforms and other innovations in the space. As exciting as this technology was, common problems existed across all platforms. Scaling to support broad adoption and providing a service the mainstream market would accept. After speaking with Meher Roy and Tim Swanson about these problems in early 2015, the line of questioning that inspired me to create Beyond Bitcoin came to an end. In that final episode, we settled on a view of the future in which a network of blockchains secured by permissioned validators would enable global value transfer. This made more sense than a future based on permissionless blockchains and all the challenges that came with them. Then came Ethereum. Infinite functionality paired with an aggressive scaling roadmap reopened the question of what might come next. This time covered in a new podcast, The Ether Review. Two years on, having been immersed in the world of Ethereum, interviewed hundreds of people for podcasts, articles, videos, and worked for the largest blockchain-centric company in the world by far, Consensus, a disturbing reality became apparent. We have not moved on from the paradigm of 2014, and the Ethereum scaling roadmap will not provide the performance new use cases need to emerge. In future episodes of The Third Web, we will examine blockchain scaling and ask the question, what are the design trends bringing greater transaction supply to the market? What new business models will this enable? What new services can we expect to see? And what products will be built using those services? What will the third web really look like? Meher Roy was a virologist working in the vaccines industry when we first met in 2014. Today, he is focused full-time on the blockchain space and hosts the excellent Epicenter podcast. Tim Swanson was Director of Market Research at R3, the banking consortium, for two years and has recently founded his own research company, Post Oak Labs. Today, we're wrapping up the Ether Review and kicking off the third web. Some of the remarks I make in this episode are overstated and underqualified. So please feel free to critique anything you disagree with in the comments wherever you might uh, wherever you might find this episode. And if there is sufficient intelligent controversy, I'll revisit the subjects in question in subsequent episodes. The reason that I wanted to uh, have this conversation with you guys was that you know you helped me wrap up uh, Beyond Bitcoin, which was my first podcast, so well. And what was fascinating was Beyond Bitcoin set out to explore the blockchain 2.0 space, as they were calling it then, the Bitcoin 2.0 space. But it just, and that was in 2014, and nothing really came to fruition. 
And at the end of it, um, or toward the end of 2014, I encountered the paper that you'd written, uh, Mihir, uh, in Architecture for the Internet of Money. And it described a system where effectively you had, a, you had these consortium ledgers or these permission ledgers uh, with basically Hawala systems allowing uh, participants to exchange value uh, on these different ledgers. And it was just a really, it was a really elegant and plausible uh, image of the future. That vision obviously hasn't come to pass. Uh, Ethereum emerged and, and it became suddenly very, uh, suddenly it was all, you know, wow, this is kind of interesting. We have a new paradigm. So I started the Ether Review, and this will in fact be the final episode of the Ether Review. And the reason that it will be the final episode is that I find myself in this position again, like we're here again. It just hasn't delivered. Scaling is, you know, there's no real scaling solution on the roadmap. Even sharding uh, on the Ethereum network, which everyone seems to rely on, it's at least three years off, and it's not a significant scaling improvement. I mean, I just spoke with uh, the, uh, this, these interviews may play out of sync, but I just, uh, I just spoke with uh, Yonatan Seller of uh, the Props Project. And those guys, even in netting a ton of transactions into single, uh, into single uh, settlement transactions on the Ethereum network, they're still going to put it under so much load that I just don't see you know, and then you've got Kick doing this as well, and you've got every single other application. How many? There's thousands of these things now. It's just I don't see that any uh, that any scaling solution today provides us with the throughput to uh, to service all of these applications. And those that do provide us with supposedly unlimited throughput, like state channels, um, they have their own idiosyncrasies and their own um, their own limitations. So. It's really time to start looking for a new solution. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's heresy to suggest that. It's a seditious uh, statement. But really, like, we are not making progress in spite of what, um, in spite of what people seem to um, insist on saying. So I thought you guys would be the perfect people to, um, to sit down with, look at um, where we've been, uh, where we are, and where we're going to go in the future. And I had a few questions here um, uh, from a discussion we had yesterday, uh, Tim, um, about uh, private blockchains, public blockchains, um, that I thought we could get a, an overview of those spaces. Uh, and then I thought we could look at the Web3 vision and what we really want out of this, uh, out of this whole space. And then uh, we could wrap this up by just looking at yeah, what, what we, we should be expecting in, uh, in the future. Sure. No, happy to go through some of these, and I certainly don't want to monopolize it. So, Mayher, feel free to to challenge me on on whatever I might say. Um, the only thing, I, and I don't want to be pedantic, but I, I did want to point out that um, I, I liked uh, Mayher's uh, article, the OSI model. That's that's like the OSI equivalent. That's what you're talking about. That article, correct? Yeah, but I, I would say I would rather say let's let's not let's not reference this because like so modest. Yeah, it, it it was it was interesting, but it was like it didn't it didn't lead to much. And I think my 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 problem was like I didn't build anything. I I wasn't capable of building something then, so it didn't lead to much. And let's just not reference it. Let's just focus on on today. Yeah, yeah, I I, I agree. It was more than anything. It was just a, it was a great thought piece. Uh, it, it just showed 
it just showed a different vision of the future. It showed something that might work um, at a time when existing solutions were not working. And what we wound up with in the form of Ethereum was a more fully featured version of what we had back then, which was very, it was very clear what was going on back then wasn't working. Those design patterns weren't working. And yet we adopted the exact same dysfunctional design pattern for the system that was supposed to serve the future. And what do you know if it, it, it wasn't any different? Um, it was just more fully featured. And these, uh, these, these scaling claims just have not been delivered on. And now the, uh, the expectation management has become so, so considerable that we're, we're back to not really actually having a solution at all anymore. So yeah, you know, it was just interesting that you you proposed a different uh, a different design pattern, and and that's why I brought that up. Cool. I mean, so like I think like c coming from you, like so I'm I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile. Have you left consensus? I have. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. So can, can, can I level set real quick for the just the audience, the listeners, to, to kind of get from what to going back to what you originally were talking about, the difference between this bifurcation of the quote unquote public blockchain world and the private blockchain world and what's been delivered. Just kind of high level explanation. Yep, absolutely. So just so the audience is clear, that term permission ledger or whatever did not even come about until March 2015. Robert Sams at Clearmatics is the one who coined it. Uh, I wrote a paper that following month that kind of popularized it. Um, and ever since then, all three of us, I'm sure, have been on panels where people argued about it until they were blue in the face. And people will continue to do it, even though both are designed for different purposes. So I, I still feel very consistent in having that view that the two can coexist. Um, neither will uh, kill the other because they have two separate sets of utility. Uh, and, I, and I think that if we look at what's been delivered, um, really... For the sake of this discussion, since we only we don't have a whole lot of time, um, let's just point out that there's only maybe ten, maybe twelve different companies in quote unquote permissioned or enterprise world um, that have gotten much funding um, that have been around for that period of time. And I would say that e even amongst those, they've only been building um, a quote unquote chain for maybe a year and a half. Like if you just look at the the release of these different products or platforms. Um, I think the oldest one is, is still not even two years old. Uh, if we look at Axoni or Symbiant, uh, obviously I'm still, for full disclosure, I'm still an advisor with R3 and Clearmatics um, who have their own platforms that they're working on. But even, if you look at them all, um, they, they haven't had more than maybe a year and a half or so of development. So I, I think it's kind of early to expect to have delivered anything. That said, I think that the um, community, overall enterprise side of the community, um, especially on the consulting side, uh, the large consultants, uh, massively overinflated the, the short run, um, not only utility short run, but the uh, ability to integrate this stuff. And it created this infl uh, expectations infl uh, inflation that I, I'm still having to deal with on a day-to-day, -day. like, no, these things aren't turned on. No, there's not like much product. There's nothing really in production. And it really um, hurts people. Or not, I don't want to say hurt people like from a physical standpoint, but from a social capital standpoint within institutions, since many of these platforms haven't, uh, not necessarily the platforms themselves, but the industry, the enterprise side, hasn't been able to deliver on the 
um, hype uh, from the end of 2015 onward. Um, the, it, it caused, has, has caused burnout uh, to some degree. With that said, I still feel that once these things are actually turned on and in production and are mature, you'll have significantly more value going through those uh, platforms uh, than you will uh, these anarchic systems, uh, primarily because the enterprises that will use them and the institutions that will use them need to have terms of service and contracts and ultimately a way of, of having recourse, a legal recourse, uh, if there's a problem. And with anarchic chains, that's just the antithesis of those, right? They, they weren't built to have uh, legal contracts uh, moving or being, being held accountable to legal contracts. It's just uh, kind of an oxymoron. So um, I, I'll, I'll pause there, but th that's my view on enterprise, that it still uh, has some ways to go to mature. And, but ultimately, once these platforms are mature, you'll see uh, several orders of magnitude more value going through those than these anarchic systems. Um, just to uh, just to dwell on that momentarily. Uh, so, uh, I've uh, I've written down these questions. What uh, what was promised and what has been delivered on, and when will we actually see uh, see the, these orders of magnitude more value being being transferred through these uh, private ledgers? What, what, however you pref whatever term you'd prefer, we we use to describe them as. Sure. So obviously, if you talk to some kind of cryptocurrency maximalist or the Bitcoiners or whatever, they're going to say, oh, it's no different than a database. For those listening to this, uh, Oracle literally joined Hyperledger, the, the organization, the nonprofit organization, like uh, a few months ago. And they announced uh, just a week or so ago their initiatives working on it. And obviously, uh, they're not the only ones. You have IBM and Microsoft on the, on the large enterprise side uh, working on various initiatives here. So what's been delivered is about a million and a half pilots. Um, some of these in different forms, in different phases. Uh, and I know it's really, it's, 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 they, it's, there's some deserved criticism there because uh, a lot of these POCs that people try to do early on uh, were with the expectation that you could turn them into actual products. And that's probably not the case for almost all of these because they just didn't have, they didn't gather the right requirements or enough requirements to actually turn them on, let alone integrate, figure out how to integrate with existing infrastructure. Um, but to be fair, you know, to if, if, if you've done anything with enterprise, especially uh, heavily regulated institutions like banks, it, it's not something that can be turned on within six days or six weeks or even six months. Uh, you, you have a whole pile of stakeholders internally at the banks. You have uh, regulators that you have to make sure that you assuage. So anyone uh, expecting fast turnarounds probably was drinking that Kool-Aid. And you know, I, I, I don't want to single out people, but uh, again, the, cons the, the, the consultancies, <laughs> I feel, I feel that they, they went around uh, creating fear of missing out. Uh, I remember being at a couple events where these uh, partners at different uh, of some of the big four would stand on tables and say, "This is the most disruptive technology since the internet itself," or you know, they'd say these gigantic, grandiose comments. And so, there's really no way you could fulfill those, even with these pilots, as, as, as mature as some of them may be. Um, so, I don't think that you'll, even though everyone's like uh, kind of grasping around it, it, it mindshare or beating each other, beating each other up over that. Um, you don't actually have market share per se because none of these enterprise licenses have been really sold uh, or, or even you know, executed at this stage. I, I suspect, based on what I do know from the various pilots that, that people have briefed me on, uh, that some of these will turn on for, uh, real revenue uh, opportunities will be at the very end of this year, beginning of next year, and then... Uh, in this, I'm not saying like for POCs or something like that, proof of concepts. I'm talking about like millions of dollars in enterprise uh, licenses 
Uh, and you already see, you know, sales teams being built up at these different vendors to do exactly that, to go out and pound the pavement and sell these enterprise licenses. So uh, unfortunately, there's not a whole lot of uh, super detail. I, I still feel it's too early to write a quote unquote enterprise blockchain book. You know, you had all these like business blockchain books. They're all fluff. Um, they lacked any real nuance. They didn't have any specific numbers in it. And that's because, number one, those were written way too early. And number two, because most of these projects are probably not going to even disclose it once they do turn live because of competitive reasons. So, uh, unfortunately, if, if anyone's looking for some juicy details, this is probably not the right interview for, for that. Maybe ask me again in a year when some of these things uh, are, are more public. And maybe even then they're not going to tell people exactly what, uh, what revenue numbers that, that they have. Hey, so Mahir, you've got uh, a ton of experience in, in the public blockchain space just by virtue of your presence on uh, Epicenter Bitcoin, where you're a, you're a co-host, and, uh, and your other activities in the space. What was your, uh, what was your education? Validity Labs, sorry. So you also ran Validity Labs, and, uh, and, um, and you've, you've been educating the public about this stuff, uh, as well as organizations themselves. So that being the case... What is your view on the state of, uh, of public blockchain solutions? Like when I came into the space in 2014, um, to me, it was clear that this was going to be like a very long term play. In the early days, there were like lots of like Bitcoin proponents, like claiming that Bitcoin would be used for remittances and payments and all sorts of use cases. And at that time, Tim used to be, used to blog very actively and he demonstrated like one by one that most of the Bitcoin use cases are not coming to fruition. So Tim had blogs about like BitPay, about like Abra, about global remittances and like how Bitcoin was sort of failing to capture all of these markets. And I, in despite reading Tim's blog, I continued to invest uh, more and more of my time in this space, run like a, a public blockchain podcast, and then uh, do some educational and consulting activities in this space. And my sort of motivation there was I, I knew that these that the technology itself was failing to penetrate the market in 2015, but I thought this would take 10 years uh, in order to go somewhere. And I was like fine with that with that approach. Compared to what I thought we would be in 2017, we are way further. Um, I think this has been an extremely good year for the public blockchain space. And personally to me, the most gratifying feature of this year is that when people used to ask me, what is the use of crypto money in 2014, 2015, 2016? The only thing I could say is that crypto money is a store of value if you if you believe that the current financial system is going to crash. That's the only, only answer I could give. Right? So if my father would ask that, I would say, if you believe that the debt levels are too high and the banks are going to go under, you might want to hold on to some crypto money just as a hedge. This year, I can actually say that crypto money has discovered its first non-criminal large-scale use case. And that is startup fundraising. There's lots of problems with it, there's a market bubble that's probably about to form, uh, regulatory crackdown. Can, can I challenge that real quick? Isn't most of this criminal though, in the sense that many, I mean, we could go on and on about ICOs that are fraudulent, but like I would, I'll, I'll let you finish it, but I, I would like to say, 
I I disagree okay. with that. So statement. yeah, yeah, we can we can come come down. Like we can talk about the specific flaws in the ICO market, and in my opinion, all the flaws of the ICO market are quite solvable, and they will be solved. But as a general statement, I think we have discovered the first non-criminal, large-scale use of crypto money, and to me, that's a major victory, right? It it sort of proves that like cryptocurrency can be something beyond a store of value, gambling. drug purchasing ecosystem and i think i'm i'm very happy uh, at the point where we are if you want we can talk about like ico fundraising and like my my view is yes there's there's lots of problems in the ico fundraising space and we can like name down these problems you can if you name down these problems there's just like four or five major problems and i think each one of them is solvable and it, and has like very good technological solutions to it Um well you know what I think let's save uh let's save the ICO question for another time because I think because yeah we we don't we could talk we could go on forever and and I'd rather actually make this a, a more of a snapshot episode we we looked at what has been delivered and and, uh, and what our expectations should be for uh private blockchains or or, ha- or permission blockchains or however you'd you'd prefer us to to refer to them Tim And uh, but w- what are your views on public blockchains from here? What 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 are your views on in terms on the promises, how they've what's been delivered on as far regarding those promises and where kind of the space is going? Certainly where the design uh the design progress is being made. What was promised was was massive, right? Uh, that public blockchains would be the system that would handle payments, that would do remittances, that would help bank the underbank would allow permissionless innovation and the development of apps that we haven't foreseen etc etc now much of these promises like most of these promises haven't uh, haven't really happened until now i think the the only real use case that has ha- that has come is startup fundraising and perhaps perhaps i think in the very near future uh, gambling on blockchains will have a second life and it will be like another big u- use case Very few use cases have happened, but to me personally, that is fine because I entered this space thinking, yes, there will be applications for crypto money, but they are going to take a long, long time to appear. And compared to my baseline expectation, which was pretty low, uh, things have been pretty fast. What's also been delivered on is that like smart contracts have have truly matured. Um, not in in terms of like security or scalability but as a concept that concept has become viable and it has entered the zeitgeist so uh so i think i think you have the statement that people tend to overestimate the effect of technology in the short term and underestimate the te- effects of technology in the long run I think that's pretty much true in the public blockchain space. Two years back, we were like overestimating that it was going to take more payments, remittances, bank the underbank, etc. And two years later, we see that it really hasn't done much, but except that it has discovered this very unique use case that allows people globally to create startup organizations. I think that's, I think personally, that's a major victory, and I think more of these use cases will appear. I personally feel that the crypto space would be something like the web. The web invented in 1989, probably the first real use case like first real use cases found in 94, 95 uh 
so eBay, some kind of marketplace and some kind of portal, then you jump jump forward like three or four years, another use case found like, another use case matures like search engines. Then you jump three or four years, another use case matures, which is like social media. You jump three or four years, another like, in the form of like mobile applications. If you look at the internet, this is, it's a story of people discovering use cases for an like open permissionless technology and the discovery of these use cases being separated uh, by spans of four or five years. And every time a major use case is discovered, there's a huge success. Some people become rich betting on that success. But I personally think crypto money is gonna be like that. This year brought us the first big success. The next big success might still take another three or four years, but if these successes keep on occurring with some regularity, we'll find that uh, this becomes a very popular and useful technology. So I, I would actually disagree, if you don't mind, can I interject? I don't want to make this a, a boring, non-Tim Swanson uh, podcast here. So here, um, I would challenge a few things that, that Mayher just said. Number one, payments. This is for people on, on listening to this. There are 3,343 payments listed on AngelList, uh, a website to fund startups. So we already know the graveyard for payments is going to be deep and wide. It already has been the last decade. It's going to be continue to be a way. The ICO idea or whatever, and I know we weren't going to go into that, but let me just briefly say, you could do an ICO without in a blockchain. It's, all it is is crowdfunding initiative. Crowdfunding has been around for a while. Uh, there's lots of websites that are centralized that allow you to do that on a platform. What ICOs really typically do is allow people to get around securities regulations and the rules around crowdfunding. So again, I don't want to say all of it is for criminal enterprises but or, or for to doing illicit stuff, but it's a very easy way of, of basically becoming a criminal yourself uh, by, by doing these things. And maybe there's a way you can structure it legally and stuff like that, and we could go on and on about on that on another podcast. But I, I'm, you and I, all three of us were on a podcast before in which ICOs were already taking place. Uh, two years ago, three years ago, you know, I, I wrote a paper back in May internally for this, my previous employer, and uh, we were, I looked at 20 ICOs from 2013 to 2014 and what they, what they had promised versus what they delivered on versus what the value of their coin was or whatever. And I found that almost all of them had failed to deliver on like a significant portion, over 90% of whatever they had promised effectively, if you bucketed it like in terms of features and characteristics. Um, but almost all the ones that were still alive and actually had a coin that was still listed on an exchange uh, were at all-time highs. So there's a massive difference between speculative value versus enterprise value. Uh, and that's probably going to just stay the same. You, you and I, all three of us could probably launch coins, get them listed somewhere, and the secondary markets just love anything to, to bet on. And, and I don't see um, what, what, why that would change or what, what kind of accountability these coin creators have that the market could discipline them on. Whereas if you actually had like a formal governance structure, you could you'd be voted out of office or, or voted out of the company or something like that. So I guess back to back to you guys, um, we, we saw the ICOs two, three years ago. We see where they are today. Maybe they changed and they get better in terms of utility or something like that. But to say that this is the only year that that happened, that's just not true. I mean, the, the thing that took off was the fact that you didn't actually need to make a new chain. You could just do ERC-20 you know, contracts or something like that. And there's obviously a debate of whether that those are centrally administered. So I would I would 
I'm not saying you're, you're wrong, Mayher, altogether. I'm just saying I would challenge the, the view that these things are, are new and this is the use case. We saw that two, three years ago. Yeah, it's true. The, the use case itself, like the proof of concept of that use case came through three years ago. But ERC-20 and the Ethereum system have, have made it into, not a mainstream thing, but have made it maybe 100 times bigger. So you will, you'd agree that the total amount of funds that have been allocated to ICOs would be 100 times bigger today, like this year, as compared to like two or three years back. So it has, maybe the right statement is it has grown as a use case. And as far as it comes to the fact that most of these ICOs are going to fail, I think that nature is, is not going to change. So what we have ex effectively is the ICO ecosystem is a startup fundraising ecosystem. And if you look at this, any startup ecosystem, any technology startup ecosystem, out of every 100 companies formed, uh, probably 95% are going to fail and five are going to be mildly successful and maybe one or even less is going to be an outstanding success. So if you look at Y Combinator, uh, Y Combinator from 2,515 has funded 800 companies. And out of these 800 companies, uh, their current portfolio, the value of their current portfolio is 85% comprising of only three companies. I think it's like Dropbox and other two successes that they produce. So three out of 800 companies for Y Combinator have produced 85% of the returns. I think the ICO space is going to be similar. So we had 20 or 25 ICOs three or four years back. Out came one big success, Ethereum. We've had probably, I don't know, 200 ICOs this year. I would expect I would expect 195 of them to be to fail or to be scams. Three or four of them to do something fine. And maybe one or two massive successes. And I think that's going to be the nature of the ICO market. It's, uh, it isn't much of a problem. Like it, to me, I, I wouldn't be disappointed if most of the ICOs end up failing because that's my expectation anyway. As long as there's one massive success, uh, this ecosystem has delivered. To interject here, I think that all of this is, right, is well-trodden territory. All of this is basically startup, venture capital, kind of it's not revolutionary and i'm with you uh tim if you you can you can just anyone can crowdfund illegally this just gave us a a platform to do it on mass and hooked that platform up to the source of capital newly generated capital cheap money right um which was the rampant and out of control uh investment and uh, and speculative investment into um, into cryptocurrencies. And so really what characterizes the success of, of the Ethereum IRC20 uh, crowdfunding ICO market is in fact not just that it's a, it's a new paradigm for crowdfunding, it's that this new paradigm for crowdfunding is hitched to one of the most outrageous uh, speculative bubbles uh, we've ever seen. And I don't want to be too I don't want to be. I don't say speculative bubble in a negative sense. I I, I, I agree with. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm actually, I don't say that in a speculative sense. I'm not going to uh, to qualify that statement further. I just. I feel like we're still in. What it still represents, anyway, is a use for 
the token issuance paradigm of this ecosystem, of the crypto ecosystem. And what frustrates me personally, and again, I don't want to be, I've been singing the praises of, uh, of Ethereum for like two years now. So like, and, and as you said, Meher, I'm no longer employed at, at uh, Consensus, which is heavily invested in Ethereum technologically. So I can finally speak my mind about some of my frustrations. Uh, and that is that if, if we aren't going to have scaling for another three years, we aren't going to see a significant technological change in the Ethereum ecosystem that might switch us, shift us out of this token, this primary use case of, of token uh, production and distribution. That would have lasted six years since uh, the launch of Counterparty, which was the, uh, the ICO platform of choice back in 2014. And I mean... I, I remember the, um, I, I think the name of the episode on Counterparty that I did was um, Trivial Issuance of a Useful Asset. And I think that there's nothing has changed since that. You could go back to that and learn everything about what's going on now from, the, uh, from that episode of Beyond Bitcoin way back in 2014. I hope the listeners won't do that because I'll be horribly embarrassed at, like, at my production ability uh, back then. But as you described, uh, Meher, this is a bit like the internet. It takes time to see these, uh, see to find new use cases. But as all of these networks are now fully congested and we do not have um, plausible scaling solutions on the horizon, where is a, or what is the design pattern or what is the, uh, what is the technological development that is going to catalyze the shift into a new paradigm that's beyond just trivially issuing useful assets? If you look before January of 2017, right? Before January of 2017, Ethereum success itself wasn't that guaranteed, right? Like they were like, there were those of us who thought this would become big. Uh, we were speculating on it. We were uh, talking about it, building. But you could have said that there would be, there was sufficient doubt whether like Ethereum and smart contracts were themselves uh, going to be useful or not, right? And it's really this year that Ethereum has, beyond any reasonable doubt, been proven a success, right? In terms of market cap and actual ICO use uh, uh, being developed. Like, interestingly, Ethereum is becoming more like money than Bitcoin ever was. You are actually using this money to do something, invest in startups. So it, it's actually becoming more like money than Bitcoin was. So I think... Ethereum's success is going to inspire the next, has already inspired, and is going to inspire even more people to build the next generation of it. And the next generation offers a lot of possibilities, a lot of architectures, and many of them can actually help solve the scalability problem. I think the simplest to appreciate might be, if the future is going to be thousands of coins, uh, as it as it looks like right now, then very logically you can have thousands of individual blockchains uh, handling the accounting for each of these coins and their applications. And then some way to move the value around. So this is basically the, the side chains vision coming to fruition, but not in the form of proof of work, but in the form of proof of stake through projects like Cosmos or Polkadot. So if, if you're gonna have lots of coins, and each of these coins can secure their own chains and we just need a protocol to move money around these chains and i think an ecosystem like that is definitely buildable right like we have all of the technology primitives required to to do that uh, 
In fact, Cosmos might launch in three or four months and uh, we'll have that. So that kind of scaling is definitely possible. The uncertainty in that route is, are we, is the question of whether we are going to have hundreds of coins that have big enough market caps so that these hundreds of different separate chains are secure enough. If, uh, if we do find use cases and hundreds of coins are big enough to secure their own chains, then like a Cosmos-like ecosystem can easily help us scale. I, I actually have a, another objection, and I don't think it's a security problem. My biggest concern is that the, the bugs of all of these different chains will wind up polluting one another through this, uh, through this, I guess, I know Interledger is already used for an actual project, but let's, let's use it agnostically now, um, through these Interledger protocols. And in addition to that, the additional complexity that is produced by having one blockchain with its own consensus and its own security assumptions, I guess here's security raising its head, um, interacting with an Interledger uh, protocol with its own blockchain and its own security assumptions, in order to get to a whole a third blockchain with its own ledger and own security assumptions, there are so many, there's so much weird complexity in there that I feel like the edge cases are going to be massive. There are going to be so many edge case failures in in that world. Now, I mean, I may be wrong, right? And I'm kind of playing devil's advocate. I have nothing to back up this opinion in terms of empirical evidence. But just intuitively, it feels like a, a, a poor design pattern. I mean, if you look at like the global financial system, the, I don't think there are like a hundred edge cases. There's only one edge case. All the edge cases can be basically compressed into one. And that same edge case exists in the current financial system. That edge case is this. If you have chain, let's, let's say you have a hundred chains and then you have some kind of hub chain, right? Like uh, CH. So you have C1 until C100, and then you have CH. The edge case is simply one, which is that there's a transaction in chain one. That transaction ends up confirming, and then some kind of change is triggered due to this transaction, transaction one, in chain one. Uh, some kind of other transaction is triggered in chain 98 due to that transaction in chain one, right? So. And then once that other transaction is triggered in chain 98, the validators of chain one end up double spending that transaction in some way, right? So they create a transaction that conflicts with that transaction. And now what happens to the other transaction that was done in chain 98? So most of the edge cases are basically variants on this one theme. And if you think about it, when you look at like, all of the national like financial systems you this they have similar problems right so as soon as you have a system in which there is finality right like you have a real time transfer and the transfer is confirmed and it can be reversed and then you have other transactions that that depend on that transaction these kinds of problems can always occur so uh, if 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 i have like one transaction on the Indian system and that based on that cascading some transaction happening on, our, on the system of another nation and it turns out that that first transaction was a hacker doing the stealing then that second transaction is going to be affected. These kinds of things I think 
happened when uh, Central Bank of Bangladesh was also looted, right? So if there's one fraudulent transaction and then the money is spent in somewhere else, then this kind of chain of causation can happen. And I think I think we will never get rid of this problem at the root. This problem will always exist. My question is, can we have... I suppose we will have just like simple heuristics with, to deal with these scenarios. Maybe the heuristic is going to be that you don't make a dependent transaction on another chain if the first transaction is greater than a certain value. So as long as the first transaction is lower than a certain value, you do a dependent transaction quickly. If it's greater than a certain value, then you wait, uh, wait a little while to see if a conflicting transaction gets confirmed. That could be one solution. A second solution might be some form of insurance might emerge. So out here you have like validators of chain one, they confirm transaction one, and your risk is they're going to confirm another transaction that conflicts with the first transaction. And maybe we'll have some kind of insurance system that uh, that pays out money if, if, if something like that happens. And if, you, if you're on chain 98 making a dependent transaction, and you're worried about the possibility of such things happening, you just buy enough insurance. So I think that problem exists, but I think there will be there will be like reasonably enough solutions for it that allow us to continue and build further. You know, you're 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 looking at this from a really high level. I'm thinking of this stuff just on the ground, just on on a software level. If you just have a simple bug, like. I've got a. I I bought a a uh, a Mac Mini. Stupidly, I bought a Mac Mini with a with a you know a mechanical spinning hard drive and uh, and four gigs of RAM, thinking that I could run um, nodes on it, right? And I can't run an Ethereum or a Bitcoin node on it. That's pretty high requirements. If you're then plugging in another piece of software, which is this Interledger protocol, then you're adding to those requirements uh, additionally, right? You're increasing your bandwidth requirements. You're increasing your um, your spec requirements, and you're reducing the number of regions that are capable of running these nodes due to infrastructure. Certainly the United States is in the dark ages as far as internet goes. It's one of the hardest places to interview people, ironically, right? <laughs> like, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, I'm here down in New Zealand and I've got a gigabit fiber connection to my house in a random place in the world. No, it's not, I'm not in a fancy neighborhood by any means. And yet, um, and yet I have a hard time, like, you know, I was at the consensus offices and we just had the worst internet imaginable, constantly going down. It was really hard to have, um, you know, uh, video conversations. And that's in New York. This is supposed to be the seat of civilization. So it begins to get very difficult if you start to increase those requirements. And, and that's just, and, and now we're just talking about actual resource requirements and, and hardware requirements and connectivity requirements. Then just think about the, the sheer number of the different pieces of software that, you're, that we need to be able to interact and the complexity of, of allowing those to interact. You know, it really seems like a tall order. Yeah, it, it, it definitely might be one to, a tall order, right? Like, so I think like this, this vision is, is not the only vision. Like, if you look at the whole ecosystem itself, I think the ecosystem is, um, is quite adaptable. There are multiple different visions and... Yes, there might be particular problems with this one. There might be something else that works. I do feel that if you're going to do like very high volume transactions, lots of transactions, and lots of transactions mean success in terms of use case. So when we are thinking about the problem of 
lots of transactions and me not being able to run my node on my machine we are thinking about a good scenario our our technology has succeeded and there's so much demand that we can't actually handle it out of our computers so that's actually a good scenario to worry about but in that good scenario i do think there is there is a chance that we become quote unquote more centralized meaning if there if there's going to be lots of blockchains maybe each blockchain might have only like 30 or 40 different validators maybe 200 or 300 nodes and each of them is being serviced through a highly performant machine on a data center so that kind of future could certainly happen with i don't know if it's a good future or not but that might be the direction we might go in i think the vision of everyone processing every transaction out of their laptops and this technology being massively successful is sort of not compatible either i'm going to if i want to validate transactions on my laptop then i'll need to choose the small subset of things i want to validate or um and in addition uh have maybe maybe highly performant machines do most of the validation so uh, the kind of centralization risk that comes from architectures like that need to be addressed i don't think any of us has all the answers but but i think the the joy of working in a space like blockchain is uh, we we got into it knowing all these risks like none of these uh, none of these problems are are new personally i'm 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 less skeptical on the technology side to me the the point of skepticism has always been the market side like i think i think engineers are brilliant uh, there's lots of things that can be built uh, humans are ingenious Uh, the hard part about new technology is uh, whether the public at large will want to use any of these systems or not the market risk is much higher than the technology risk in my mind it has always been so i would agree with uh, a few things that mayor said but not that last part like i think that if if we look at the even like the block size debate and fiduciaries and accountability and so forth like you have you have core developers and people who call themselves core developers of d- these different platforms say hey we can't make certain changes because um by doing so we risk we risk billions of dollars of assets that's like self incrimination that they are fiduciaries and they should be regulated and i'm not saying that because i want everyone to be regulated but like look the market as we call it uh, used to be fully anarchic the reason why we have laws is because somebody like screwed up ma- massively and you have uh investor uh no no you had no investor protections or no consumer protections so th- those laws exist the reason market structures exist today is because someone s- somewhere screwed up massively and there was no way to hold those people accountable so then they created some agencies and so forth so it, all the cryptocurrency world is doing at this stage is just reinventing all the same exact problem re- recreating and reliving through these problems that we had previously now i don't want the the anarchic world to to disappear and it won't irrespective of what I say I I think there's a lot of free thinking that takes place in that world but to to say that the, there are no problems on the tech side at the end of the day blockchains don't run themselves people do if they, they they're they're not uh self-sustaining or auto, uh, completely automatic if there's a bug somebody has to come through and fix them and as we've seen with this block size debate you have you know uh, at least on the bitcoin size you you had you know, I don't have any cryptocurrencies so please you can't 
point fingers at me and calling me favorite or whatever. But if, if you look at like the Bitcoin core team, the, I have a new article coming out talking about how they, they pretend to be Schrodinger's cat. On the one hand, they, they, they have their own verified Twitter account now and like, yes, this we are core. We are going to tell you exactly what to do and everyone else is a pretender. But then when they're held accountable for it saying, hey, someone from core said this or that, they're like, no, 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 we're not core. So on one hand, they want to be core when it, when it benefits them, but they don't want to be core when, it, when they actually have to be held responsible for their actions. Of, of themselves or, or the, those surrogates who, who pr promote themselves. And I'm not picking on necessarily Bitcoin Core. You have all these other you know, development communities. At the end of the day, if these people are, are, are managing and building financial market infrastructure, why, they, why should they not be held accountable for those actions? If, if that's the responsibility they want to have, um, we, we have development teams at banks that have to be held responsible um, for, for their actions. In case there's a, trades that don't go through, someone could get fined. So, like, I don't see... Ultimately, the market that 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 virgins that you talked so, about. I'm personally saying that uh, like core is pretty amorphous. Like who ex exactly consists of core is is amorphous. Maybe maybe the better example is Ethereum Foundation, right? So here's an entity that has a legal address. You can exactly pinpoint to it. That's not dictating. Maybe it's suggesting how code should be upgraded. Now, whether the question becomes should what Ethereum Foundation be called a fiduciary, right? You can isolate it legally really well. On the one hand, like coming from a conventional perspective, you might say yes. But my counter to that would be with Ethereum Foundation, uh, the participants in the Ethereum ecosystem, right, whoever they might be, are always insured against the mistakes of the foundation because they always have the possibility to fork away. Right? So the difference between a traditional fiduciary and the Ethereum Foundation is if there's a traditional fiduciary like Bank of America, if Bank of, of America messes with my accounting, I have the only legal recourse I have is to, have to I need to go to the court system. But if the Ethereum Foundation, let's say, um, censors some transactions or does something I don't like, the set of people that don't like it can always fork away to a new chain. So we always have insurance against the malactions of the fiduciary. And I think that is the difference that, that should lead us to logically conclude that we should not treat them as fiduciaries. <laughs> because all they're publishing is a set of code, and we have always the possibility to fork But that's, uh, that's uh, let me interject by saying, number one, none of us on this call, I think, are lawyers. So if anyone on this line is trying to get legal advice, please get it somewhere from paid legal advisors, not us. Uh, we're, we're, we're just being uh, having fun here. But um, the... Um, the holding people responsible for their actions, like, look, you, 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 all, all you're going to end up now, if you, if you don't hold somebody responsible for their actions, and again, these are anarchic systems, there's no terms of service, so maybe maybe trying to actually get legal legal standing for like who, who you actually sue in case you do uh, have problems, um, you end up with free entry. And, and Steve Waldman's written a number of, of interesting things on this, and that's exactly the world we're, we're looking at, where it's more profitable. Instead of attacking the network through some kind of weird you know, mining attack, it's if you have that talent and Ability, you just fork and do an airdrop and make quick money and, and you know, sell those coins on some exchange or something or, or do an ICO or something like that. So like it, the 
the, the world we, we see today is exactly the world uh, several hundred years ago in which anyone could effectively create their own currency, create their own assets uh, without having to disclose any or, or be held responsible for the performance of these, these assets or something like that. So, again, I don't see this as necessarily new. And I'm not saying that you know, FinCEN is going to jump in and sue Bitcoin Core or Ethereum Foundation or whatever. But to, to say that these entities don't have responsibility or accountability or you can't you know, hold one person who actually flipped the switch or wrote the code uh, accountable for that, I don't think is quite right because all it takes is one lawsuit to, to actually settle that. Hey, so um, we've uh, we've really uh, we've we've flogged that dead horse. Um, so let's uh, let's wrap this up by um, although we could go on about it forever, and there are actually a lot more points to be made. Um, but um, but what what are you guys' predictions for two thousand and eighteen? So my predictions for two thousand and eighteen. So I, I generally. Try not to think of year by year, first of all. I, I, I want to think on the scale of decades, right? I want to think on a 10-year scale. I want to think on a 20-year scale because, um, because I think that's the relevant scale on which this technology is going to play out. I, I totally think that we might discover big applications of this technology in like every five years or so, and that's fine. I do think there's going to be some kind of uh, needed regulatory action in, in the ICO space. I think in 2018, we are going to see the first sort of scalability solutions having um, having alpha nets. And I actually look forward to seeing some kind of private blockchain that I can actually use. So uh, all of the many governments have been announcing cryptocurrencies. Lots of banks have announced uh, blockchain systems for quite a while. I look forward to actually having an app on my phone, which is interacting with a private blockchain and giving me something useful. Yeah, so um, I I think I, I I'd like to use some specific benchmarks or, or, or metrics for this. So, in terms of revenue, I think the um, the quote unquote permissioned or private blockchain. If you look at the vendors, uh, the 10, 12 or so that I've, that I've written about or talked about in, in the past. Uh, on my blog or in other writings, um, I'd say have a co will collectively generate maybe a hundred million dollars altogether the whole year uh, from enterprise licensing deals and uh, production applications. So, and in in, in in converse, conversely, I think that they will probably raise more money in aggregate than they will do generate in revenue. Um, I think um, just the opposite for quote unquote public or anarchic chains. Um, they almost none of these platforms will have any break even with in terms of transaction uh, transaction fees. Um, they will rely on subsidies uh, from the from the the block reward the, these Coinbase rewards and the the ICO and speculative money coming in will will, will vastly outweigh or out, outnumber by several orders of magnitude the actual enterprise value of these platforms. And I don't mean by like one order of magnitude, but multiple. Just like even today. Uh, you had just from January to today, you had just over $2 billion raised in ICOs. And I doubt the platforms altogether will have, you know, uh, even a fraction of that in actual transactional throughput in terms of fees uh, related to actual applications and not like wash trading or, or gambling or arbitraging or something like that. So I, 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 I feel very confident by the end of 2018 that uh, those roughly those numbers uh, will be on par. And again, I'm not saying that those 10 or 12 companies on the permission side or enterprise side. Uh, will each get that money? I'm saying as an aggregate whole, including maybe some of the enterprise, uh, some of the large, um, big enterprise companies too. 
All right, that's uh, that's pretty good. That I mean, I think I think we've covered a good swathe of subjects. I'm beginning to realise that there is so much to cover here. Um, uh, you know, as soon as we actually start reassessing the space and, and reimagining how this might uh, how this might unfold, it does seem like as seemed back in uh, at toward the end of. Uh, beyond Bitcoin, that the 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 enterprise space or the the um, the permission space, the non-distributed uh, or economic consensus space is um, is advancing and and providing more greater functionality than than the anarchic or or permissionless space. So really, I suppose next year the question is, what do we see as far as scaling goes? What do we see as far as interledger protocols go? Um, something I've got my eye on is the work coming out of IC3, which is the cryptocurrency and smart contract research group. I'm also closely following uh, Definity. I asked, um, oh yeah, we, we, we spoke about them uh, yesterday, Tim. And um, as, as you said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, which we have not seen yet. But I think, um, I think it is the next generation of, uh, of these blockchain platforms that are really going to show us what, uh, what's what and really show us that, uh, that new functionality and that new usage paradigm that kind of i don't know i'm really craving something new i mean the the token thing so i think like one of the one of the interesting platforms that i recently came across is a small platform called zilica so there's a there's a cryptocurrency research group at the national university of singapore um led by dr pratik saxena so he's a professor there and they have proposed this system which they call zilica and they already have an alpha private test net for it that's a sharded blockchain. So that blockchain has the characteristic that as the number of nodes go up, transaction throughput goes up. So currently their uh, testnet systems have uh, 400 nodes handling 2400 transactions a second across four shards. So that's at least in theory the first uh, sharded uh, public blockchain network uh, running in testnet phase. Hopefully we'll see more like these. I think uh, I think they might have something like that running at Cornell right now as well. But that's interesting because Cornell's solution it, it relies on uh, on secure hardware enclaves, and they scale with uh, with the addition of nodes, as does Definity, which was its core design principle. And that's interesting to hear. What 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 did you call it? Zilica. It's uh, Zilica. Zilica. It's like silica, but with a Z. Zilica. So as like like my my theme has always been the same. It's like with, with any kind of new technology like, like this, it's it's a game of patience because we are going to always overestimate in the short run and we are going to underestimate the pace of things in, in the long, long run. Simply because like achievements compound over time. So you unlock some kind of value and that shows us the way to the next small set of value, like next small value, which shows us the next small value. Small improvements over time, over a scale of 20 years, can be truly game-changing. And I think even with things like sharding, they might seem far away. But if, we, if there's like enough talent thrown at it and like progress happening every year, we might see actually a production scale system in the next five years. That will work really well. Fantastic. I think that wraps it up really well. Thanks for joining me, guys. Uh, where can people uh, read some of your um, Bitcoin bashing, Tim? <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm not sure if I single out Bitcoin itself, but you could go to up, upnumbers.com. I still post there. Actually, my most recent post, the, the eight things cryptocurrency enthusiasts 
uh, don't want you to know, or something, whatever that phrase was, the uh, title. Um, I actually had 100,000 views. It was the most read thing I've ever written. Um, and it did make fun of some things about Bitcoin, but to on some other cryptocurrencies too. Um, and for what it's worth, I, I probably should do something on enterprise stuff at some point. It's just, there's not as much drama. You know, there's none of these systems are, are turned on, so there can't be any money laundering uh, to be done or anything like that. Plus, you know, they could be easily fined and sued if, if they did. So, uh, yeah, upnumbers.com, and then my Twitter feed is um, at upnumbers as well. I actually would point out that book, uh, Great Chain of Numbers, um, that ebook that you wrote. That was really good. That was one of the best. That, to me, uh, it came out back in 2014, and that was one of the best things I've ever read outlining and b- breaking down the, uh, the, the blockchain space. So there's some props for you, listeners, if you want to. You wanna... Oh, thanks. Uh, we should go through that at some point and make fun of each page and how things didn't turn out. Like, as critical as I am about other stuff, I probably, I probably could uh, make fun of some of the things that people said back then, too. So uh, we should do some retroactive uh, cannon uh, fodder or something like yeah. that. W- wouldn't be hard. Uh, so, Mahir. So, uh... I think the, the listeners can find me at my at, at our podcast Epicenter or TV. Uh, we we try to interview people and keep pace with uh, the diversity of people. Arthur brings on the show, so I'm 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 always kind of impressed uh, with like this sheer breadth of people Arthur brings on his show as like a with a one man like as a one man army really. So at Epicenter we are seven of us. And our guests have lesser diversity than than the ETH review. So, but we but we try on our side. So you can find me there. Yeah, and that's about it. I I tweet sometimes. You can check out my Twitter handle at, at the rate Meherroy. All right. Well, it's been great to uh, it's been great to kind of have you guys round out another podcast series. Um, yeah, a real pleasure, and uh, I look forward to resuming probably a pretty similar conversation in uh, in the next few months, some stage. And I'll catch you guys at DevCon with any luck, or maybe in uh, in San Fran. Certainly at DevCon. Looking forward to it. That was it. The first episode of the Third Web. A big thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for the tunes. No social email or web accounts just yet, but you can reach me on Twitter, at Arthur Falls. Of course, you should subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast manager. This feed will probably still be called the Ether Review, but it will update in time. I'll get you guys next week.